Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And it's Thursday, the 23rd of September. I'm sure many listeners are looking forward to the long weekend, as I'm sure my teammates are, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swart coming from Cape Town. On the show today, our partners from the FT give us some insight, in further insight, I'd say, into the Evergrande and Chinese story. Justin, I know you also chatted to Randmore Fund's Sean Pesh on this matter, as, as other global matters included. Yeah, lots of topical uh, investment themes uh, I spoke to Sean about. Sean actually went the extra mile. He went to go look at Evergrande's annual report. They are indeed another Cayman Islands-related Chinese company. But he does think that the contagion or the possible contagion um, that media is speaking about is going to be contained to strictly China just as a result of the lenders, mainly being Chinese banks, etc. Um, but he is concerned about the general macroeconomic backdrop in China with the sluggish growth or, or the slowing growth that we are seeing. Bronwyn Nielsen also chats to Pitt Fulian. He touches on China as well, but he's a big proponent of ESG. And I mean that in the opposite. He looks at opportunities outside of the environmental, social and governance uh, space. We also chat to Andrew Rissick. He gives us some insight into the Portuguese golden visa as a Opportunity is coming to an end for those. It's not a cheap opportunity, but it's a 350,000 euro opportunity to get that passport. And then Chris Bateman chats to Caroline Lee. She's an anesthetist and she looks at the healthcare workers and how COVID has played a big role in their burnout, as she calls it. And it's quite a interesting take on what's happening on the ground in some of these hospitals. Um, just on .com, top stories of the day, France Crenier. B-I-R-C-O, he's stepping away from that position this year. He looks at South Africa and he says the only way forward is for expropriation without compensation and the ANC to sort of move aside. Uh, Artist Liz McDay chatted to us last night on the show and a piece on the website looking at the nuclear secrecy has also been well read. And then a nice piece from our partners at First Rand looking at socially conscious athletes. That's also performing quite nicely on the, on the website. Not just with regards to YouTube. So the flash briefing uh, that covered yesterday's headlines. Uh, this is the striking down of Montasha's attempt to get 26% black ownership. That's doing really well. And then Justin's interview with the CEO of Remgrow yesterday is gaining traction. And the third video, which is still just doing really well, is the presentation that Rob Herzog did at the conference. So I'd keep out an eye out for part two, which is coming out later today. You're going to drop that one today on YouTube. I'm going to drop that one on YouTube. <laughs> we're, looking, we're looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. uh, similar, similar themes on the podcast channel. The Hersoff um, piece from the conference is still in the top three. Our business power hour from last night. And then the interview Magnus did with Bronwyn on his opportunities in the Japanese market. Uh, it's quite an interesting take on that. Uh, but let's check in on the news and markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. 
South African President Cyril Ramaphosa accused developed nations of acting immorally by hoarding vaccines needed in poorer nations. In an address to the global COVID-19 summit, Ramaphosa said, of around 6 billion doses administered worldwide, only 2% of these have been administered in Africa, which has a population of 1.2 billion. This must be unjust, and it is also immoral. The World Health Organization has set a deadline for countries to vaccinate 10% of their populations by the end of September, but only about 20% of African countries will meet that target. South African-born biotech billionaire Patrick Sunshong will announce a plan to transfer technology for the manufacture of COVID-19 and cancer vaccines to South Africa. Sunshong's Nantworks has signed a collaboration agreement with the South African government, Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, the SAMRC, and the Center for Epi- Epidemic Response and Innovation. Three local universities are also party to the agreement. And mining companies in South Africa are considering spending as much as 40 billion rand to construct 2,000 megawatts of power generation capacity. This is according to Roger Baxter, CEO of Minerals Council South Africa. Mining companies have been pushing to develop their own power plants because of persistent power cuts imposed by ESCOM. They are also keen to move away from total reliance on the mainly coal-fired power supplied by ESCOM as their investors pay more attention to climate issues. And just on the markets, Justin, I know the Monetary Policy Committee did as expected and kept our South African interest rates on hold, but I'm not sure how the markets reacted to that. Markets holding up strongly, Stu. Good into the week with the JSE All Share Index up at 63,700. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 67 cents to the dollar, 20 rand and 12 cents to the pound, and 17 rand and 20 cents to the euro. Gold is low at $1,754 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost you around 27,000 Rand. Brent crude is firmer at trading at $76.30 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back approximately 640,000 Rand. In the financial news, after three years at the helm, Click CEO Vikesh Ramsander will resign as the person in charge as he takes up an opportunity abroad. This has been a recurring theme within the South African corporate business leaders for the better part of a the last decade, contributing to the brain drain as some of our best local talent look for greener pastures overseas. His replacement, long-standing group executive Bettina Engelbrecht, will take the reins from 1 January 2022. She takes over a retailer that has continued to go from strength to strength, taking significant market share away from consistently year on year. French media company Group Canal Plus at stake in South African media company MultiChoice to more than 15% from around 12%. Group Canal Plus, which operates in similar African jurisdictions to the South African broadcaster, invested a significant stake in 2020. Cards. MultiChoice has had an indifferent 2021 with issues in Nigeria causing its share price to fall over 10%. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Thursday, September 23rd, and this is your FT News Briefing. The Federal Reserve's timeline for raising interest rates seems to be inching closer, and a U.S. State Department advisor defends the new security pact with the U.K. and Australia. Meanwhile, some big names are lining up behind a former Treasury Secretary's private equity fund. Plus, market analysts are debating whether the crisis at one of China's biggest property developers could wreak havoc on global markets. The FT's James King reminds us that China's not a free market financial system. 
the government in Beijing says to the banks, "Okay, I need you to start bailing out a certain property developer." Those banks cannot but follow the orders of the central government. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The Federal Reserve meeting yesterday was a bit of a doozy. It was really quite important,、uh, possibly the most important、uh, meeting of the year. That's the FT's Washington bureau chief James Politi, pretty much summing it up. He said the Fed signaled it's ready to start slowing its 120 billion dollar a month asset purchases. That's the bond buying program to support the U.S. economy during the pandemic. He also said the Fed's starting to contemplate interest rate increases starting next year. The takeaway is that the Fed believes that the economy is sort of strong enough that it can live without massive monetary support. So it's sort of brushing away some of the concerns about the Delta variant on the U.S. recovery. It's confident that sort of the fiscal policy environment will be conducive to stronger and more sustainable growth, and it shows the inflationary concerns that have flared up this year are not expected to deliver a sort of massive blow to the economy either. The Fed is confident that. Inflation will be transitory. It will it will start to raise interest rates maybe sooner than it had anticipated,、um, but it does not expect any kind of stagflation scenario. So, James, I got to ask:、uh, considering all the news that came out of yesterday, why were the markets so calm?、Uh, the S and P was up, you know, just shy of a percent. But you know, usually markets hate the prospect of rate increases. They love low rates because it means cheap money sloshing around the economy. So, you know, what gives? I think that first of all, the、um, the idea of a tapering timeline beginning in November had been amply telegraphed, really, by the Fed and other Fed officials in the in the last few weeks. So that was expected. And on the interest rate increases, I think it's true that it was a bit of a surprise to see the split, the sort of nine to nine split on the FOMC between those who believe the first interest rate increase will happen next year and those who think it will happen、uh, in 2023. I think that that was a bit of a surprise, but I think markets and investors and economists are are gradually becoming more accustomed. To a slightly more hawkish、uh, Federal Reserve. That was the FT's Washington bureau chief, James Politi. Former U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin just landed a big investment from SoftBank. Japan's tech conglomerate has invested an undisclosed sum of money in Mnuchin's new private equity fund. The fund's worth two and a half billion dollars, and it's called Liberty Strategic Capital. SoftBank will join another big backer, Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund. A source told the FT that SoftBank's move to invest in Mnuchin's Liberty Strategic Capital was influenced by the Saudi fund, which is administered by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The big story in the markets this week has been the financial crisis at one of China's biggest property developers, Evergrande. One of the things the saga illustrates is just how huge a role property has played in China's economic growth story. The building boom has been extraordinary, but now, according to one eye-popping statistic, there's enough empty apartment space to accommodate 90 million people. 
So what are Chinese officials doing with all those unoccupied apartments? They're blowing them up. Well, at least in this case. You're listening to the sound of a forest of half-built high-rises in southwest China crumbling after a demolition explosion. Here's the FT's James King with some background. There has been the biggest migration in human history from rural areas in China to uh, cities over the last 20 or 30 years. Hundreds of millions of Chinese rural residents have moved to the cities and therefore uh, there had to be a big building boom to accommodate them. But the other side of it is the way that financing works in China is such that these are state-owned banks uh, that are very reluctant to withdraw their credit from property developers, thereby causing those property developers to go bust. And, and so that has really been the reason why this oversupply of property has persisted for, for several years now. So James, long term, demand is expected to fall, right? The Chinese overall population is not yet in decline, but it is moving towards decline. And because the number of women between the the key childbearing ages of 22 and 35 is expected to decline by about 30% over the next decade, people are predicting significant population decline over that 10-year period. And this means that there will be much less demand for the property that is already heavily oversupplied in cities across the country. And that leads to projections that many property developers, which have huge debts on their books, are facing a rather unsustainable future. So, James, there's another aspect to this we recently learned from our economics reporter in China, Sun Yu. He told us that local governments, like big cities, are really dependent on property sales. This is really the untold story. The truth about how local governments, several thousands of them all over China, finance themselves is really revealing and very much dependent on the property market itself. Uh, About one third of the revenue that these local governments uh, get comes from selling land to developers, which then, of course, use that land to build high-rise apartment blocks, etc. So if the developers are now in the state of facing a, a really lackluster market, not being able to sell the property that they've built, they are not going to have the money available to buy the land. And that means that these local governments are going to face a a really big hole in their balance sheets. And that will mean that they may not be able to finance the bonds that they have issued in order to build infrastructure all over China, which is another big part of China's uh, growth picture. We can see that this is already starting to happen. So do you see a broader systemic crisis looming in China's financial system, given how huge property is as a proportion of GDP? When we talk about systemic crisis in China, we always have to bring in the enormous power of the Chinese Communist Party, because basically this is not a free market financial system. If the government in Beijing says to the banks, "Okay, I need you to start bailing out a certain property developer, those banks cannot but follow the orders of the central government. So 
what we're probably talking about is not a systemic problem in the sense that we would perceive it in the West, i.e. contagion. That type of scenario in China is is quite difficult to, to give credence to. So it's likely that there would be a much more gentle retreat of financing to property developers, but this would be managed in a way by Beijing that would not cause the collapse of, let's say, several property developers or several hundred property developers and thereby bring about an economic uh, crisis for the country. James King is the FT's global China editor. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson was in Washington this week and met President Joe Biden and appears to have been a pretty happy visit coming off a week after the UK and the US joined Australia to form a new security partnership to counter China. The pact ruffled some feathers, though, including those of France. Australia canceled a huge submarine contract with France and will buy nuclear subs from the US instead under the deal. Here's US State Department Counselor Derek Cholet with a little bit of context. The capability of nuclear-powered subs in particular is substantial in the sense of uh, their ability to project power throughout the Indo-Pacific. But also the deal uh, over time could lead into other areas of military procurement, whether it's artificial intelligence, quantum, all sorts of stuff that is going to help define the militaries of the future. That was U.S. State Department Counselor Derek Cholet speaking with the FT's Gideon Rockman. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. I'm Nielsen for Biz News TV, and I'm talking to Pete Fulion from CounterPoint Asset Management. Thank you very much for your, your time, Pete. Well, it looks as though there's a flurry of happiness in the markets again and that we've got temporary reprieve from Evergrande. Of yeah. course, uh, Pete, I know that you look through all the noise, you long-term in your investment themes, but you must have been listening to all of the happenings of the last couple of days with interest given your view on China and that China mm-hmm. is potentially something that is going to throw us all to the wolves in the medium term? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure it'll throw us all to the wolves, but I, I do think it's a risk, a risk factor that bears watching. Um, and, and, you know, what's happening in China has actually been telegraphed for a long way, from a long way out already. I mean, uh, from the first regulatory interventions by the government almost a year ago now, um, they've been telegraphing that they want to change the way the economy works. They want to change the structure of the economy. And being the type of government they are, they're busy doing that. Um, so I think any investor in China would have seen the signals coming and would have, uh, I, I think it would have probably been wise to have been cautious around uh, the prices of assets in China, how they will react to the government inventions there. Um, And I still think it's one that bears watching, although right now, given the sharp declines in many of those asset prices, maybe it's time to start doing some research, doing some work, finding out, you know, whether there are investable companies there. Um, So, you know, it's normally when the bad news hits and everybody is very negative, um, that prices uh, start getting to attractive investment levels. 
So on the local front, we had Remgrow out with really robust results yesterday. Any thoughts on, on that front from your perspective? Is Remgrow a company that you have been interested in? Although, again, as an investment holding company, I would assume that you are happy to make those decisions yourself rather than allow for entry into an investment holding company. No, I do think, uh, I, I disagree with that. I think there are many, well, many, there are quite a few investment holding companies where the management actually adds value um, and that uh, generate good returns over time. Unfortunately, the past 10 years, Rembrandt has not been one of those, but it seems like things are starting to change there. They're actively um, uh, unbundling assets, um, RMB unbundled first strand, Rembrandt then unbundled first strand, RMI is unbundling Discovery uh, and it's unbundling um, Momentum, Metropolitan Momentum. Uh, so they're actively taking steps to improve shareholder value. And I think that is a sign for shareholders to start looking at Rembrandt. So despite its poor performance over the past 10 years, maybe things are changing. Maybe they've got the wake-up call to say, hang on, let's take some positive action to increase shareholder value going forward. And I think uh, given what, R, you know, what RMI has done, a lot of companies can learn from that, um, how, to, how to increase shareholder value. Peter, I've also just looked at your Twitter feed and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've got quite a hard line on ESG and this uh, trend that uh, obviously many people feel is such a hot investment theme. Now, traditionally, you stay yeah. away from hot investment themes, yeah. but... Hot investment themes are start running exactly. that way. Yes. And, and you look That's at right. Sassel, you know, coming out, the company's going to look at its emissions, it's going to really focus on reinventing itself, 2030 target, 2050 target. But uh, give me your sense. I mean, this is something in your view that is just overdone and, and really has no value from a, an investment theme perspective. From an investment perspective, sustainability is key. Any long-term investor looks to its investment companies to be sustainable and subscribe to all those good things. Because if you want to make a long-term investor, it's pointless investing in a company which does things which turn out to be unsustainable and goes belly up. Uh, you don't want that. Um, but if one looks at what a lot of companies are doing now, they are pandering to um, the so-called index uh, builders who rate companies on their ESG ratings and they're doing all these things to get a better ESG rating so they're going to have a better weighting in that index. But uh, at the end of the day, what's happening is that sensible um, outcomes are being ignored and you're having lots of very severe negative unintended consequences. You know, if everybody starts saying we're not going to invest in coal anymore, finance new coal mines, our base load energy generation capacity will disappear in a couple of years' time because the, the coal mines can't invest in expansion and the coal will run out and that is our base load. And then you have what happened in the UK over the past few weeks where energy prices went through the roof because the wind stopped blowing and the sun stopped shining and then they had a problem with their nuclear base load, which the import from France they had a problem with that cable and they didn't have enough base load um, energy that to start importing gas and prices went through the roof. And I think for developing countries, that is, that is a very negative consequence. So it's all good and well having clean energy, but you need to have energy. Uh, and, uh, you know, clean energy or renewable energy is not 
sufficient on its own. You need baseload capacity. Nuclear, ideally, that's probably the cleanest energy there is. Uh, and West Africa is, unfortunately, we still have to use coal for quite a while. So when it comes... And by the way, just on that, a lot of people say, oh, you know, renewables with batteries, that'll give you baseload. Well, what goes into batteries? Uh, a lot of dirty stuff goes into batteries. So it's fine once the battery's there, but to get to a battery, you need lots of copper, you need lots of metals. All of that has to be dug out the ground, which is a dirty business. And then one day when that battery is, is life is finished, you've got to dispose of that battery. And where do you do that? And how do you do that? So you have to consider the whole value chain of uh, so-called clean energy to, to make a judgment call on that. You're not going into renewable energy in any space, are you, Pete? Or are there pockets of interest uh, that you deem worthwhile from an investment perspective? I think what I said earlier, when things get hot, I run the other way. Um, Renewables are very hot to the run, so prices are very high. (laughs) Yeah, too hot for me. Uh, The prices are just too high. I I don't think it makes investment sense. At some point in the future, it will make sense to invest in those things from an outside a minority, passive minority shareholder, um, which is what uh, we are, it might make sense to invest in it. Right now, what makes sense to invest in is coal mines. Uh, coal mines are cheap. Um, they produce something we need. Uh, and um, I think our investors benefit from the returns that coal mines can can produce for them. How do you look at something like Sibanye Stillwater then with obviously their diversified metal, metal portfolio, gold, mm. um, Yes. Yeah, I, I see you're going to take this one can, and run okay. with it. Let me tell me where you where you think Sibania is going. <laughs> Look, I, I, I think uh, Neil Froneman is a good capital allocator. Um, he he did fantastically well to diversify out of gold into platinum, palladium, and now he's diversifying into lithium. and And I think if the renewable energy plans and electric vehicle plans come to fruition that people are talking about, you know, the amount of electric vehicles and the, and, and the renewable capacity gets installed that people are talking about, it is going to need lots of copper and a lot of lithium, a lot more lithium than uh, we are producing at the moment or, and, will, uh, and can be reasonably expected to produce in future. So, so I think that is, isn't a bad bet to get into the lithium side of things. Uh, but let's see how that play, plays out. But I, I think in the resource uh, sector, you can do worse than um, have Neil Froneman allocate capital. For. So I want to find out some of those areas that you are pursuing where nobody else is going right now. and that Coal mines. <laughs> All coal. So this is a coal theme. Is that it? I just go up. I just yes. buy up coal across the board here. So Yes. You, you just buy you just buy everything that the ESG guys don't want anything to do with. Uh, coal would be top. <laughs> All right, list. that answers it. So the best entry point for for that. What am I looking at? Is this? Uh, do I go into uh, a Kumba Iron Ore? In, in, in South Africa, no, I think we have a couple of entry points. I think the probably the most diversified and the most interesting one is Glencore, which has been buying coal mines from people like Anglo American for one and two times earnings. Because Anglo's is pandering to ESG activists and saying we're selling our coal, so Glencore is buying that up, which is a good thing. Because if an incumbent owner of a coal mine sells it for ESG reasons, they could sell it to some nefarious operator who doesn't care about the environment at all, and the outcome could probably be worse than it was owned by a responsible owner like Anglo American or Glencore. So Glencore is buying up these coal mines, uh, which are being forced. Sales which are being forced, which are being sold 
uh, almost in a forced situation by people like Anglos for very cheap prices. And then they also have copper and other metals as well. So I think Glencore is a very interesting situation listed in South Africa. Um, that would be top of my list. Second is Exara, which is sort of half coal, half iron ore. So the iron ore price has been coming down a lot, but the coal price has been going up a lot. So I think um, they've done very well out of that. That's another option. And then Tumgela, which has uh, been spun out of Anglos just recently. It's gone from 20 rand to 70 rand in a space of a month or two. Uh, and I th- still think that th- that's got legs as well. So there's a couple of options here in South Africa that you can that you can take advantage of. How does business empower our nation by bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities, and by backing the next generation of business owners? That's why. South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Justin Rowe Roberts of Business, and with me today is Randmore Fund Management founder, Sean Pesh. Sean, lots happening in the financial markets around the globe. Evergrande, China's second largest property developer, has stolen the headlines of recent weeks with many concerned about possible financial contagion that could spread if the real estate giant goes bust. What implications would that have for China and the rest of the global economy? Yeah, hi, Justin, um, and thanks for inviting me on. So the first thing is I actually read the Evergrande annual report only in the last couple of days, so we have no exposure here. But um, a couple of interesting points, actually, and maybe that will lead to, to their then win you know, discuss, discussing where the contagion lies. The first is it's a Cayman Islands company. It's listed in Hong Kong, but like a lot of these Chinese companies we've come to know, um, it's a Cayman Islands company. They have 200, 200 million square meters of land reserves. So it's a massive company, $215 billion of inventory. And most of that, interestingly, is funded via deposits. So they have about 150 billion of payables. And that's because people come along, they put down a deposit, on some new development, um, and uh, and so those are the guys who are probably going to end up losing here. They also have about $97 billion of net debt, okay, so that's a big number. And what's interesting is quite a bit of that debt is via the Cayman Islands company, so it's issued in, in the Cayman Islands. And so that, I think, is quite interesting, and we'll come back to that. Um, interestingly, in the last few months, they did issue a statement when they did a profit warning. I mean, amazingly, they... They, uh, they signed their accounts at the end of March. Um, they did declare a dividend. Everything was going swimmingly, and it's only in the last few months that apparently things are falling apart. And they've been selling property to suppliers and contractors, I guess, as a way of paying them. So um, they have an $83 million coupon, which is causing some challenges at the moment. And you think, well, hang on, you've got $215 billion of inventory, and you can't pay $83 million of interest? So this, this kind of illustrates just how close, you know, how far against the ropes they really are. And about 70% of their debt is due in two years. So the key question has to be, well, what's the contagion risk? Okay. And of course, the immediate thing is everybody rushes off and they go, oh my goodness, materials, we better sell materials because, you know, these buildings, they use a lot of steel and concrete and copper and all the rest. Okay. Interestingly, copper, nickel, zinc and oil all fell on this news of Evergrande in the last couple of days and bounced back. Okay. So I think that's quite interesting. Um, 
The, the property companies, in terms of the property companies, uh, in their annual report, they state that the top 10 real estate companies have about 28% market share. So then you start to say, okay, well, if it's, if it's, maybe it's the banks, maybe it's the, the chaps or the people who, who've put down deposits, but what about the suppliers? Well, 45 of their largest suppliers are less than 30% of purchases. So the point being, it's going to be quite broad, but I think it's actually going to be quite limited to China, certainly on the, on the, on the local debt. And the real issue is, well, what about, what about I mentioned the materials, um, but I think the interesting thing is that if, if there's a problem with the dollar debt, it's going to be a problem for all the other Chinese companies listed in Caymans. And that's where I think the contagion could lie, and I haven't seen any comments to that effect. Now, that's quite important because Alibaba's got 21 billion of Cayman Islands and Bermuda debt, and Tencent, interestingly, has about 43 billion of Cayman Islands and Bermuda debt. So, for me, I think that's the part to watch. This is clearly going to have uh, some implications for China. Uh, they might not default on this interest, and maybe this drags on a little bit longer and they manage to uh, paper over the cracks, um, but it's a problem. And, and here you have a company. I mean, the other interesting point I'd make, just reading through the annual report, is that, the, and, and I haven't seen this commented anywhere, but the, the, um, the chairman of the board and the CEO attended half the board meetings last year, four out of eight. And, you know, I mean, what does that say about corporate governance again? So, yeah, interesting times. Staying on the theme of China, Sean, China's recently come out with a common prosperity drive does that confirm your bearish stance on China as the Communist Party continues to pursue a more inclusive economy at the expense of corporate profiteering? Absolutely. I think you, know, you can understand why the Chinese government needs to look after their, their citizens. They are first and foremost their main concern. Foreign shareholders are not their concern, and they're going to do what is in the best interests of their citizens. And is it in the best interest of the citizens to be sitting playing computer games all day? Um, I'd argue probably not, and, uh, but that's my view. And so I think, um, I mean, you'll recall that when this thing first happened, the regulators sat around and you know, had a discussion and the stocks all rallied. But every week there seems to be a new angle. It's the, you know, it's the casino stocks. It's the luxury goods stocks. It's the, so it's not just, you know, now we've got the, the, the property companies. And so, um, and so they, Chinese government's just looking after their citizens. And, 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 and that's totally understandable. The problem I think international investors are going to have is that when you look at Russia, and Russia just acts in the interests of their government and their country and their citizens, those companies are on five times earnings. China, everybody's telling me, you know, these Chinese tech, it's all cheap and 30 times earnings because it's not 40 times earnings. I mean, until they're on five times earnings, you know, then, then we, maybe we can have a discussion. But, but I think how on earth do you, do you put a price on this kind of risk? That's, that's what I'd argue. Sean, moving away from China for a second, and we'll get into the Fed meeting, which took place yesterday in further detail. Are these accommodative monetary and fiscal policies, which you've seen from central banks all around the world, somewhat artificially pushing markets higher? Is that healthy for economies in the long term? And what are the possible repercussions to it? I mean, look, clearly the, the monetary inputs have, uh, have you know, the, the handouts that many of the Western governments have done to keep the economies alive um, have, have influenced markets. There's no doubt about that. Um, and and they've, changed, they've changed markets. I mean, one of, the other, one of the biggest issues right now 
is supply chains. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to touch on supply chains and just give you a, a, an idea. You know, you had the pandemic, and so all of a sudden you had ship brokers and suppliers um, scrapping about 11% of their ships. Okay? And at the same time, aircraft weren't flying, and they carry about 50% of, of cargo. So, but now you have people sitting at home getting handouts, but they can't spend those handouts on holidays, and they can't spend the handouts on movie tickets and, and restaurants. So what do they do? They spend it on stuff and things and peloton bikes and those kinds of things, okay, and gym equipment. And, uh, and that stuff needs to be shipped. But now you've got fewer ships. You've got COVID-interrupting ports. You've got, uh, you know, it, it's a problem. And so that's why you have this massive issue where you have these supply chains backed up and the cost of sending a steel container from China to, to the States is about um, is $10,000. It was about $2,000 in March 2020. Um, and so now everybody was like, well, great, well, don't worry, it's cyclical, so people will build more ships. Sure, but you had, I think there were 300 shipyards in 2008, there's now 150, and the steel price is higher. So you know, it's going to cost a lot more to go and build new ships. And so these supply chains are probably going to be stuck with us for longer. But that's a simple example as to you know, what happens when you inject monetary stimulus into the system, the, the unintended consequences that can result. Um, and, and of course, now you've got wage inflation. And so, uh, and I know, anecdotally, I know of restaurants and you know, think places like that, they can't get chefs because their chefs left to become Amazon drivers or no longer interested in working seven days a week in crazy hours. And so the whole economies have, have shifted. And, uh, and the interesting thing is going to be what's going to happen when the government turns the taps off. And they've been very cautious about that. We've seen, what, we, what have we seen? I mean, the ECB has said they're going to start tapering after September. The Fed said they'll scale back from November. So, um, you know, they're, they're really trying to be cautious about not just giving the market a shock. They don't want to shock the market. Sean, the labor supply shortages as well as the supply chain disruptions, are those not something that will pass as we enter a post-pandemic world? Well, I mean, you, you know, what, what I'm hearing from the, uh, from the companies and all the rest, nobody thinks this is going to normalize for the next few years. Um, and as I say, you can go build more container ships, but you can't do that instantly. You've got fewer shipyards, their order books are full, and the steel price is four times the price. So, you know, it's going to cost you a lot more. And you've got fuel regulations. So I think the, the capital expenditure that these companies are going to uh, embark upon is going to be very cautiously spent. In terms of the, the wages, I mean, you've got a situation over here in the UK where we have about 40,000, 50,000 heavy goods vehicle drivers short, and they're offering huge prices. I mean, you can get, you know, there's, there's talk of 50,000 pounds for a heavy goods vehicle driver. And, and of course, that's that um, working cohort are quite old anyway. I mean, they're over, the average driver's, you know, well over 40. Um, and, um, and so a lot of people have just said, okay, well, I'm just going to retire early. But of course, it's been tricky to train them during the pandemic because of social distancing and all of that kind of thing. So maybe it normalizes, but it's going to normalize at a higher level. You know, I think everybody is talking about, I've been um, fairly vocal, not in terms of my view about uh, transitory inflation, just listening to what the companies are saying. And the companies are not expecting this to normalize anytime soon. And, and I don't think if you go and tell a heavy goods vehicle driver, you can get 50,000, but next year it's normalizing back to 20, you know, they're going to take the job. Probably not. And so there's going to be some structural changes and it's going to be at a higher level. And I'm sure you're going to start to see the central bankers start to move that way. And that could spook the market.
With me now is Andrew Rissick, the Managing Director of Sable International. I'm Bronwyn Nielsen for Biz News TV. Andrew, thanks very much for, for joining me. And I want to focus in on the golden visa when it comes to Portugal and uh, the Rebelo Private Equity Fund. I know time is running out to capitalize on the 350,000 euros for that golden visa. Can you give me the lowdown? Hi, Bronwyn. Thanks for having me today. Um, yes, there is a frenetic rush at the moment going on around the Portugal Golden Visa. So maybe just to just to give a little bit of context, um, the Golden Visa program has been going since 2012 and um, predominantly been real estate investments. And a couple of years ago, the private equity as a, a category was introduced at 350,000, which was 150 less than the cheapest property option in those days. So it became quite popular. Um, but yes, there are big changes coming at the end of this year. So the program will continue. But um, they, they're starting to be a little bit more clever about where they're directing investments. So um, all the prime real estate areas will be excluded. And then the other big changes, um, obviously, around the private equity, which will be increasing from a minimum of 350 to 500,000. And that means you've got to get your application in by the end of the year. By the end of the year. So is it November or December that we are targeting here? Yeah, so it's important that it, it is, it's technically by the 31st of December. So any, any applications that have not been submitted into the system and receipted as received by the Portuguese immigration authorities will then not qualify. Um, so in fact, it's, it's really, we almost at the stage in the next sort of two weeks where we'll probably stop taking applications because of the logistics of getting a, an application for a client together. Because, you know, there's lots of documentation that a client needs to collect um, this site before we can actually collate the, the full application. So that's a yeah. very important point, Andrew. Maybe we just focus there. So in the next two weeks, you're basically saying this is almost the last call if you're wanting to do the application, given the legwork from a paperwork perspective that needs to happen to reach that 31st of December deadline. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's critical that people understand this because what's going to happen there are lots of people, I mean, every time I go onto Facebook or anywhere, I'm just seeing new Golden Visa experts and they're all punting this because they know that there's a sense of urgency and, and everyone's kind of galloping to try and get in at this at this rate before it goes up. Um, most people don't really understand the, the logistics. And at the moment, you know, we've, we, we're hearing of clients that it's taking six to eight months to get an unabridged birth certificate or an unabridged marriage certificate. We can get them quicker, um, but yes, it, it is complicated. Clients need birth certificates, marriage certificates. We need police clearances. Um, you're dealing with government authorities with COVID still um, being used as a, an excuse for non-performance from a lot of these departments. It's making life a little bit more difficult. So as long as people understand um, that there is that risk if we don't get the application and that, that they'd have to then chip in another 150000 to qualify them over and above the 350. So talk to me about the, the take-up that you've seen. I mean, the 350,000 euros is a sizable tranche to, to put forward for a visa. What exactly are you entitled to? And, and as I said, how... How, what take-up have you seen on the ground? 
Yeah, so look, the, I think the, the sense of urgency is, is being built up about the increase. The private equity as a, as a sort of an industry coming out of Portugal is very new. Um, you know, and, and what one needs to be quite wary of at the moment is lots of property developers who are wrapping their projects into private equities because of the changes in the real estate legislation. So um, I think there's a lot of risk, but we've seen even before the sort of panic around this deadline, we've seen a big uptick in in, um, in applications this year, really driven by by all the economic bad news that we're seeing here. People are starting to really, you know, get quite jittery. The, the riots in, in July and KZN and Gauteng were, were an absolute tipping point. Um, for a lot of people who I think up until now have been quite happy sort of sitting here without a plan B. So there's that sort of panic that's going on as well. So percentage-wise, uh, we've seen a massive uptick in, in inquiries and, and people committing. Talk to me, Andrew, about the risk associated with the Rebello Private Equity Fund itself. I mean, it can't be risk-free. Specifically, no. can you highlight some of those issues? Yeah, um, I, th- I think there's no investment in the world that is risk-free. Um, I think that that we've been around long enough uh, to see and, and really get to understand the Portuguese investment um, environment. Uh, there's some very risky uh, investments on offer in the market at the moment. There are people, um, you know, sort of posing as, as experts and, and coming in and targeting vulnerable South Africans. Um, the Rebella itself is, is a project that we work very closely with. Um, it's got a, a very strong real estate component. The private equity part of it is um, it's essentially a boutique hotel, um, and it's in a, in a hotel chain called uh, Bonporto Hotels. We've been working with these guys since 2014. They've got two really nice hotels in Lisbon. The Rebella itself is a fantastic site in um in Porto on the Douro River, and it's going to be a five-star boutique hotel. It'll be completed at the end of next year. And um, we we like it in that, look, a lot of clients will chat to us about wanting diversity within a fund, um, and that is one of the things that we obviously don't offer in the Ravello private equity, but we had no intention of making an open fund. We want people to understand that what they're investing in is essentially a boutique hotel on a UNESCO World Heritage Site in probably the most popular city in Portugal, which from a tourism point of view is a very popular country. So you're basically investing in a great real estate asset that's wrapped in a fund and, and the yields will be driven by tourism in a country that's popular. Obviously, COVID has been quite a wake-up call for everybody and people are a bit skittish about tourism. But, and hotels um, and leisure. Exactly. Absolutely. But, I mean, Portugal genuinely is one of the most vaccinated countries now. I've just been there for six weeks, and it's not like South Africa. It's really opening up again. Um, and I would say that by the time the Rebello actually opens and, and the hotel starts to settle, um, hopefully the devastating effects of COVID will be something of the past. But, you know, one can never guarantee when the next COVID's coming along. So I think that's the risk. Um, in terms of the, the, the developer and the hotel operator and the team around the investment, um, I've got absolutely no problem with them. As, as I said, they've got a great track record. We've worked with them for over six years now. And the clients invested in the other hotels are all very happy, even having gone through the worst of the COVID. Um, none of them have had to put any money into the investments. 
the investments are all still there and they're performing and they've actually had a good summer. So, um, yeah, but I think the biggest risk of private equity and whether it's a Rebella or any any other one is by nature private equity is quite illiquid. So if a, if a client, for whatever reason, in the five, six-year period of needing to hold a golden visa investment needs to liquidate, um, that could be a slight challenge um, because you, you probably really want to be waiting for the fund to do you know, the exit at the end of the fund life. Talk to me about the economy, you know, Europe. Are you convinced that the health of the economy is sound? Look, I think, I think um, you know, when you're looking at it from a South African perspective, we're an emerging market. We've got a, an economy under immense pressure. Um, it was, it was in, in a disaster state before COVID even hit. So I think, you know, anything relative to us in the first world is probably a good hedge and a good bet. Um, but I think Europe, you know, in global terms is not showing massive growth. But what you've got to understand about Europe is highly educated. There's lots of capital there. And, um, you know, I think that uh, a country like Portugal is working really hard um, after the, the economic crisis of 08, and then they got their bailout in 2012. Um, the golden visa is one of many measures that the government put in place to attract foreign capital and other investments. Um, but, yeah, look, all the European economies have taken a battering since COVID, but, but incomparable to South Africa. Um, it, it's, it's not that bad. But all the countries in, in Europe have definitely increased their debt, um, much like we have. But I just suspect that they're going to be a whole lot better at trading out of it than we will. Um, so from that perspective, I'm quite bullish about Europe. At Bright Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's Thought Leadership feature made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs mesh life insurance that changes as your life changes. Hi, I'm Chris Bateman, a freelance healthcare journalist, and my guest today is Dr. Caroline Lee. She's a Gauteng anaesthetist and a co-founder of the Health Workers Care Network, a trend-setting eight-year-old burnout and mental distress national support group for healthcare workers. Caroline, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The thing that perhaps listeners would be most interested in is the amount of burnout and anxiety and depression amongst healthcare professionals just help get us a baseline of, of understanding of the kind of pressures that healthcare workers today, especially with COVID, are facing. And it, it existed before COVID, but this has aggravated the situation. Well, that's for sure. You know, we, we've known for a long time that there is um, burnout in, in healthcare. And there's been lots of studies um, from overseas and South Africa that showed that burnout has been quite severe. And um, especially in the anesthesia field, because we've been suffering from um, suicides from our colleagues, which is much higher than the general population. And the reason why I think it's firstly, um, we are expected to be 100% perfect all the time, but we work such long hours. And so it 
not only do we have uh, precious at work where, where you are expected to be giving 100% attention, 100% caring, 100% perfection, really, all the time, all the hours that you work. But not only that, when you go home, then you're, you're going to have to play many roles, um, including that of parent, that of um, spouse, that of um, child. And so, um, you know, it's not just the long hours that you have at work, but, you know, just maintaining that work-life balance in itself is hard. And, and your particular field, emergency medicine and anaesthetists, I mean, a 60% greater risk of breakdown and burnout compared to people at the, the same level of education. That, that's a European study, I think. But it's, it's reflected here. We've got this quadruple burden of disease, which is un, unlike many European countries. Um, and then there, there, there's our volatile political situation. There's COVID. All of this. Tell me what, what you're seeing with, since the advent of COVID in March last year. Well, firstly, you know, um, it's anesthesia at, at itself, you know, uh, as some people say, it's like, um, 100%, you know, so 99% boredom and 1%, 1 um, stress, um, intense stress, because, you know, usually if you do the anesthesia well, you just have to do the observation and the run around and making sure everything's okay. But come COVID and surgeries are not allowed to happen. So we ended up helping with ICU. And let, so let, let me just clear, let me can I clarify that to, for, for perhaps the, the listeners who don't know elective surgery is generally cancelled during COVID so that, that's what you're alluding to that's right so so during the COVID especially during the waves there are no elective surgery there's just no beds to fit the patients in to have elective surgery so even during the first wave I think there was three four months where we are not allowed to work at all but then you know at the beginning it was reasonably quiet so. The, the anesthetists were sort of worrying more about um, getting infected when they do um, see patients, but more worrying about financial situation in that we have no income and we don't know when will be the next time when we will be able to work again. And so it was a major financial stress. I don't think people realize that doctors, not just anesthetists, surgeons as well, all the surgeons and even GPs, um, anybody, uh, ophthalmologists. Can you imagine? Nobody wants to go and see an ophthalmologists, for example, um, <laughs> yeah. um, during COVID, you know, that type of thing. So so a lot of the doctors are actually have no income for that time. And then when second wave happened, suddenly the, the hospitals were inundated with patients and ICUs was very full. I, I remember our hospital went from having few patients to basically converting wards to ICUs. And, you know, we, we had, I think, about 11 ICUs open for COVID, plus all the other wards. I mean, the whole hospital was filled with COVID patients. And our work um, as anesthetists would be to help the ICU team to intubate. These COVID patients are pneumonias and sort of dropping saturation, and we need to intubate them and put them on ventilators. And that's one of the most dangerous jobs. I think at that time, a lot of anesthetists was terrified of contracting COVID because, I mean, we're doing one of the most dangerous thing you can do with a COVID patient. And it's just to put a tube down their throat while they're basically coughing your face, uh, you know, and so it was terrifying. Even then, the people did, really didn't know it was an aerosol, an airborne, or airborne virus. We did know. That, you did, but, that, but, but the, the, the lay public was starting to realize that, yes. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, at the, we knew from the beginning that it was an aerosol thing and, you know, how important it was to mask. 
but the public didn't know and they didn't realize how, how important that was. Tell us about the Healthcare Workers Care Network and how you came to start it and, and what, what prompted you to start it. Okay, so we've been talking about because of the burnout and that the worsening burnout among the doctors and the healthcare workers, we were talking about it before COVID even started. We wanted to start something to just be the support system for doctors because they had no one, nowhere to go to and they, they really they would rather speak to doctors who understand what they're going through than anybody else. Because firstly, you know, it's your reputation at stake. Secondly, people don't understand the stresses you go through. I mean, really buck yourself up, you know, buckle up and just do the work kind of story. But we understand. And so we were trying to form a network of doctors that are prepared to support other doctors at that moment in time. And then uh, when COVID happened, we just accelerated the process and we got into collaboration with the, the psychiatrists and the psychologist societies. And we went into collaboration with um, SADAC as well, South African Depression Anxiety Group. And uh, we formed uh, with 500 volunteers from the psychiatrists and psychologists, mental health practitioners who are all volunteers and they volunteer their time for this. And um, it was just because of the everybody being locked down and nobody was working, it was quite easy to get people to say, look, we might as well do something and help others. um, What what did the volume of calls look like? Did it tick up during the surges? Did it tick up since March last year? Yes. So, so, um, the biggest, um, surge was right at the beginning. And the main, main cause at that time were, were more fear and anxiety. And it really wanted to know about if I was exposed, if I met somebody that's got COVID, uh, what if I don't have enough PPE and that type of thing. It was a lot of fear among the healthcare workers at the beginning. PPE being and personal they, protection equipment. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, and then yeah. they, it calmed down and then it calmed down. And then second wave happened and people starting to, um, get exhausted, getting stressed out, working long hours, seeing the deaths. So we're getting more mental health related issues rather than asking about clinical information about um, COVID and infection. And then the third wave, when we then have the second really peak of our um, requests, and those are definitely mental health related, because we saw a lot more deaths during the third wave. We we had a massive surge, I I guess the Delta strain, and um, we had we we really literally had overrun our hospitals at that time. We were running out of ventilators, we were running out of beds, and we had patients waiting in the car park. beds you know so you've experienced you know a a lot of death you know as an anaesthetist you've even spoke about a a very close colleague whom you didn't recognize because there was you had ppe he had a mask on and and only later did you realize it was a close colleague who had passed away while you were just shortly after you intubated him how does that affect you when you lose somebody that you know anybody but somebody you know and work with right so at that moment in time i think we just Basically, suffer in silence. We 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 push it to the back of our minds because I mean, if you if you um, allow yourself to feel it, you actually can't go on working. But you know, at at times, it just sort of uh, until it overruns. So from time to time, when you're feeling more tired or it's just too much, sometimes you you see two patients, three patients in the same ICU dying at the same time, or somebody that you've really made an effort for, or somebody you've met their family and um, you don't want them to die for example those ones um somehow trigger an overflow and all of a sudden just break down 
I imagine, you know, that's another aspect is having to inform bereaved families all the time, over and over, comforting people. Um, eventually, you must just have to blunt your emotions. I, I, you know, how do you survive, you know, both seeing death and, and consoling grieving people? Most people then blunt their emotions. And I think um, I, I try not to do that because then you, you lose your empathy. This thought leadership feature was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, that's it from us today. Thanks for listening. And I do hope everyone has a very well-earned and deserved long weekend. Until next week, ciao for now. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.